Please be seated. The text from this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, it is the text that we declared as our profession of faith. And so for that reason, we will not uh, read it again at this point, but we'll be interacting with that passage uh, as we consider the message this morning. But before we do, let's go to our God. Let's go to him in prayer that he would speak to us. Our Father, as we do come, we come with thanksgiving to you, who is the Lord of all and the one who has given to us more than we understand or can imagine. Father, we pray that you would open our minds as well as our hearts this morning, that our minds might consider the reality of the resurrection that you have spoken to us about, that we have come to celebrate that has changed all things. And at the same time, Lord, that our hearts would begin to accept that which our head begins to process, that we would not be left as a people who know stuff, but that that very stuff might shape the way that we feel, the way that we react and relate to you, and therefore the way that we relate to one another and to the world that is around us. Father, I pray that by the work that you do through your word in this time, that we would be a people who live to celebrate a resurrection and live a life of resurrection power. Bless us, Lord, that we may more and more live in you and honor you and trust you. We pray all things in the name of Christ, our Lord and King. Amen. No one felt the death of Jesus with quite the sting that Peter did. Certainly others were hurting. Anyone who had been following him was at least intrigued and and longed for whatever might come next. And so now his death left them with an empty feeling, somewhat like you might have when you come to the end of whatever series you're binge-watching on Netflix. It's kind of the now what. Some of you more than others longing for its continuation. All of the disciples felt the kick in the gut. They all had placed their hope and even their lives into what Jesus was saying and what they thought Jesus was or who they thought Jesus was, and now he's gone. And so their hopes had dashed. And I imagine only a mother who has watched her child die would have any understanding of whatever emotions Mary was experiencing. And so without minimizing the fact that many people were hurting because of the death of Jesus, there was no one who had boasted so proudly and yet failed so miserably in such a short period of time as Peter had. Anticipating the fact that he would die and give his life, lay his life down as an expression of love and to bring salvation to those that he loved, Jesus told his disciples that everyone would leave and forsake him. No doubt that stung for all of the disciples who heard that kind of charge, just as it would if someone that you were close to, someone who loved you, said, you're going to forget me. But hearing that, Peter looked around 
at his brother and his closest friends and didn't seem to doubt that they might fall away because he said, yeah, they might. But even if they do, even if the whole world forsakes you, I will never forsake you. And then his bravado melted away in a matter of hours. When he was confronted, not by the religious authorities, not by the Roman authorities, but by the mere identification of a slave girl who was probably 13 or 14 years old, the embodiment of the least influential, the least powerful people in the world. One, she was a slave. Therefore, she had no power, no credibility. Second, she was a teenager or a preteen. So she hadn't even come into full adulthood, and so she might be considered given to fantasy or hyperbole or just a mistake. And she was a girl in a culture that didn't value women at all and certainly not their words. And yet when she sees Jesus, she's, sees Peter, and she says, I know you. You were with them. You were with him. All of the tough guy, all of the strength, all of the passion, all of the intention just melted away. And in his fear, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know you. I don't know him. I have never known him. And then even as Jesus had told him what happened, he hears the cock crow, reminding him of the prophecy that he too would fall away. Peter now sinks with deep, deep angst. See, the reality is that the death of Jesus caused a collapse of hope for many, but for Peter it created a sinkhole that was now filling up with feelings of, of shame, and that shame, the weight of it, was causing him to, to weep. He was not only helpless in his own estimation and that of anybody who would look at him and know what he's done, they would say, you're not only helpless and hopeless, you're worthless. I mean, who needs a friend like that? And so while many people were hurting, Peter was experiencing a deep, deep wound. His whole life had crumbled around him. Now, no doubt there are people here this morning who can identify with the disciples. You have hopes and you've had dreams and they haven't necessarily come to fruition. They're unfulfilled. And the mental picture of the life that you wanted begins to fade out even as the dreams seem to be fading away. There may even be people here this morning who can feel somewhat like Peter. You had great intentions. You had great confidence that you would carry out those great intentions. You would do great things. You would do great things for other people. You would help other people. Your life would make a significant difference. And now you consider certain aspects of your life, certain parts of your life, and you realize that you have made worse than mistakes and had misfortunes, but you have taken more wrong turns than made right turns. And that worse than that, that the decisions that you have made in making these wrong turns not only cause the misfortune and disappointment, but that you have betrayed and you have hurt others, even the ones who love you the most, who count on you, and the ones that you claim to love the most as well. And you feel that your life is broken. And who could possibly have any respect for you? 
Maybe you're one who simply has had life go pretty well, but you look at the news and you realize the future doesn't necessarily look good. And so you wonder, perhaps not for your own life, but you're wondering for the life of your children. And so when you look at the news and you consider what lies ahead, your, your future uh, floods your heart with fear and doubt. The question that we have to ask ourselves particularly today, a day that is a celebration of a resurrection, but a question we have to ask ourselves at some time or another, and probably regular, is this. With such great anxiety and such great angst and stress in the face of such failure, how can we have a power of spirit that leads to joy? It's not a power that simply enables us to cope with the evils around us and to deal with the fact that we we have failed, but really, even with those truths, enable us to experience delight and joy and happiness. How can our lives be filled with fruits of righteousness and labors of of love when we recognize our limitations and even our our proneness to, uh, to fail based on our own track records? And with life as we know it and long for it in jeopardy, how can we find hope? This morning we're reminded that Peter found hope despite himself in the resurrection and all of its promises. Because this passage that we declared and that we're considering this morning has an awesome statement. Against the backdrop of what Peter was feeling on Friday and Saturday, and even somewhat at the resurrection of Christ, because we recognize that even when Jesus raised, Peter's response was not the celebration that we would tend to assume. If you read the gospel, you recognize that Peter's response might have been like, maybe not as bad as I I thought it would be. I mean, I, I, I killed him, but he's undead, so, you know, how bad can it be? But he avoided Jesus until Jesus confronted him later. And so you realize, even with the good news of the resurrection, that that which was the most hopeless wasn't as bad off as it seemed to be. He still dealt with his own failures and was robbed of the joy that the promise of the resurrection ought to give. Against that backdrop of somebody who was experiencing that, now consider what it is Peter that declares to us in this letter that he wrote about 30 years later to other believers who were facing persecution in order to reorient their attention and to give them courage, joy, and hope. Because here's what he declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's rather amazing that this failure, this guy who felt two inches tall and eight feet deep would be the one to remind us and to declare this truth. 
I think the fact that he's the one that says it speaks volumes to us. All the disciples speak to this in some way or another, and it is vitally important. But the fact that Peter is the one who reminds us, and God had granted him over the years, insights into the implications and the promises of the resurrection, it speaks to every one of you here, no matter who you are, no matter how broken, no matter how much you fail and hurt other people. The resurrection promise is for you because Peter understands that the resurrection changed everything. And he tells us that the resurrection speaks to us and actually delivers something to us. The resurrection, through the resurrection, we are given a living hope. As we look at this passage, one of the things that I want to make sure that we see is that we understand that the living hope is first and foremost a gift. It's a gift that comes from the resurrection, that the resurrection itself is also a gift. Consider the language of the passage. First, Peter's blessing God, the Father, for what he has granted, what he has given us. Those are languages of recognizing that something has been granted, something has been given. That's, you give gifts. He later, the next verse, he talks about the inheritance that is ours. And inheritance is not something that is earned, it is something that is given. It's an expression of the heart of the one who gives it. and has really says nothing itself about the one who is the recipient. And so we recognize first and foremost that the resurrection hope, the hope of the resurrection, the gift of living hope, is a gift that comes from God. But we also need to be reminded that not only is the living hope the gift, it comes in the package of the resurrection. And we're reminded that that is important. And the reason it's important is this. In order for there to be a resurrection, there first needs to be a death. Otherwise, there's no resurrection. The little letters R-E, they're important. I don't know if it would be a surrection or whatever it would be with the proper word. I know it's not an insurrection, but, it's, uh, but there's, there has to be life that died for there to be a resurrection. And so the fact that Peter is reminding us of the importance and the benefit that we have in receiving the gift of the resurrection that gives us the gift of hope, resurrection presumes that there's a death and therefore we're reminded of the reason that Jesus died in the first place. That he says that no one took my life, I gave it up for those who belong to the Father are given to me, those whom I love. And I gave it in order that my life might pay the price that they owe and that it might satisfy the fullness of the wrath that justice demands that God pours out on sin. I took it all, I paid it all. That was the way that I paid for the gift that people would have of living hope through the resurrection. But we are reminded that it is the gift of the gospel, the gift of the death that leads to the resurrection, the resurrection that flows from the death, that leads to a living hope, and that itself is a gift. And we need to give thanks to God for that gift. Second, we see is that it is a, the gift of the living hope is actually a confident expectation. The reason I think it's important for us to be reminded of this, and even the intensity by which Peter is speaking, is different than the way that we tend to think of hope. We tend to think of hope as something that we would like to see, something we want, something we would like to see happen, but we have no power or ability to make it come to fruition. And so many of you sitting here today are thinking in your heads, 
I hope UVA wins and goes to the Final Four. I hope they win the NCAA championship. Others of you here today, I know without a doubt, are hoping that UVA does not win tonight and go to the Final Four, and that they do not win the national championship. But whether you're hoping for UVA to win or not win, our idea of hope, we use the word hope as something that we would like to see or not see, that we have no power or ability to influence and make happen. In this particular case, your hope rests in the hands of a dozen 20-year-old guys. Good luck. Um, <laughs> but hope when it is used in the scriptures, and hope as it is used here, when Peter's talking about a living hope, is not just, oh, I hope something happens. But hope is an expectation. Hope is the difference between the promise of something that is certain and the delivery in receiving it. Hope is not like hoping your team wins or something else. It's more like most of you with your paycheck. You have worked for it, you've earned it, and then when payday comes, I would imagine very few of you say, praise be my boss, who out of his mercy has granted me the salary that we had negotiated and I worked my tail off for, and frankly, I deserve more anyway. You see, that's the certainty of a paycheck comes because it has been earned. In fact, there would be, there's, there's no surprise. There would be more surprise and there would be an insurrection if it didn't come on the day that it was supposed to because it is yours, it is right. The certainty of the gift of the living hope that comes because of the resurrection is not because you and I have earned it, but Jesus has. He has paid the price fully. He has lived the perfect life. He gave his life down. He has paid fully everything and said, credit everything to the people that I love. It has been paid for. It has been earned. It has been promised, and it will be delivered. When? On the day that is appropriate. But we're already experiencing the benefits of it now, is what Peter says. See, the hope that we see spoken of here is not vain. It's reality already working itself out now. It is a confident expectation. We also need to see, however, that Peter says we have been given a gift through the resurrection of a living hope. And the word living is important here. I mean, think about it in its opposite, which sometimes is the best way to understand what something means. The opposite of a living hope is a dead hope. That may be something that you wanted and is no longer possible. It may be something that is just kind of sits there, doesn't do anything. But a living hope produces fruit. And it's important we recognize that the living hope does produce fruit in our lives. It has a power and it pronounces and produces change in our life. And like a garden, a living hope is fertile and fruitful and productive. But the question we need to ask ourselves and that we should ask of the scriptures is what kind of fruit is it supposed to be producing in our lives? And I want to offer very quickly four things that we need to be looking for in our lives to be produced as we are receiving the benefit of the gift that is the living hope. The first thing we need to recognize is that a living hope drives out, drives out all fear. 
Now, some of you are Bible students, and you know that John, in his epistle, writes, perfect love drives out all fear. And that's not unrelated to what we're talking about this morning. But some who are a little more wordsmithy might say, okay, well, that's perfect love does that. What's that have to do with hope? Well, Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, says this, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. In the next chapter, he says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And so the promise of God's presence and the promise of belonging to God that Jesus has secured actually produces a hope that drives out the fear that we have in our lives, whatever it is that we may fear. Now, legend has it that there was one word that was never allowed to be uttered at the Hearst Mansion in Central California. William Randolph Hearst, despite his great wealth, his great power, and his ability to do almost anything in this life, if you were in his home and this word was uttered in his presence, you were banished, never allowed back, and probably have the full wrath of his resources poured out upon you. And that word was death. Despite everything that life offers that he could purchase, he was deathly afraid of the word death. Most of us can understand that. I think that Robert Browning, the great poet, captured our natural fear of death in one of his poems when he writes this. Just when we're safest, there's a sunset touch, a fancy from a flower bell, someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides, and that's enough for 50 hopes or fears, the grand perhaps. You know, what a question would be, what, what is Browning talking about here? He's talking about something that most of us have experienced, whether we are afraid of physical death or the death of our dreams, the death of our hopes. He's saying that we spend so much time trying to avoid the concept of death and loss that just when we think that it is out of mind, there are always things that will bring it back to memory. It may be a sunset that reminds us that just as the day comes to an end, so does all of life. It may be a beautiful flower that you see flourishing and realizing that it will only be a matter of time before something either tramples on it or it too will die. It may be the actual death of somebody you know and maybe even not even somebody that you know, but just recognizing and you're hearing that some celebrity has passed on. It is a reminder that death comes to us all at some time or another. And the very thing that we fear from a physical death or it could be something that reminds us of the dreams we have, the hopes that we have, that they too may die. It brings and racks us completely with fear. And yet what Peter is reminding us here is that in the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ, through the resurrection, we are given a new hope, a living hope that drives out the fear because we turn our attention to the God who is over all and has demonstrated not only his power even over death, but that he is good to his word and he has promised we belong to him and all the promises that he has made in the person of Christ that were secured by his life, we now know that God, not only has he promised them, but he has the ability to deliver. And so as we focus on the resurrection, it gives us hope. Why does the resurrection give us hope? We need to understand the background here. The resurrection is actually was foreshadowed in some ways through all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. He would go in. He would lay the sacrifice out. If the sacrifice was accepted, then the high priest would come out. Everybody knew that the sacrifice was accepted. They were forgiven their sins for the year. 
If the priest didn't come out, they knew that the sacrifice had not been accepted. In fact, that was such a real possibility that the high priest going in, either because the sacrifice was not sufficient or the high priest himself was not holy, because God will not accept us just kind of wandering into his presence, but recognizing his holiness is required. The high priest would have a, a, a little had a rope tied to his ankle and a little bell on that. And if he went in and it was taking longer than people were comfortable with, they'd shake the rope. The bell would ring and the priest, if he was taking a while, he would just shake the rope back and let them know that he was still alive, he was still working. If nobody shook back, that was bad news. So they'd gather the men and they would pull him out. He was dead. When the sacrifice is not accepted, the priest would die and not come back. Jesus, when he gave his life, tells us the price has been paid, but we have no way of knowing that as long as he's dead. In fact, because of that very history, we have good reason to, would have good reason to believe that it was not paid, that all of his promises were just the rantings of a crazy person. But when he walked out of the tomb, we were given reason for hope, and that hope drives out all of our fears because Jesus had paid the price. God had accepted it. God's power and God's promises are at work in this world and in the lives of those who, who trust in him. We see, secondly, not only does it drive out fear, but it gives us an assurance. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God and indeed interceding for us. It's not just promise we can cling to, but Paul is building on the hope of the resurrection and all that is secured to say, put a nail in it, it is settled, it is done. We don't approach God with our fingers crossed, we have the assurance. Related to that, we have an anticipation of a better future. Theologian Gerhardus Voss writes it this way. The Christian is one, according to Peter, who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in full view. His outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. In other words, we know that we're made right with God, we have that assurance and that God is in control, but we also have reason to believe that our life, whatever is going ahead, while we know that we'll have trials, because Peter tells us we will experience them, we also know that our life will not be fruitless, worthless, and wasted. We have the assurance that even in this life, not only just the next, but in this life, as we are tasting it, our lives matter. And then the final thing I'll just touch on this morning is this. It's not unrelated, but it is somewhat distinct. Is that we have an intimacy with God that leads to a very personal act of worship. Where do I get that? The very first words that Peter speaks. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he is keenly aware that it is God who has done all of this and that God who has worked all this out. He's very close to God, very aware of God, very conscious of God. In fact, he's living to speak and praise. He's experiencing the joy of God and joy in God. And he overflows into praise. It's not a matter of that our corporate worship gets better. 
It's a matter of Peter recognizing that the living hope that comes from the resurrection enables us to approach God. And then when we approach God, we are aware of what God has done, and we're reminded of why God did it. And we know that it's because he loves us, despite us being people who may even be failures, who have hurt and wounded and betrayed others. He has paid that price. He has made us his own. And that wall now being knocked down by God's provision of the person of Christ through his death and resurrection, there is nothing that would keep us from God. And if we are people who understand where we could be, where we should be, and now where we are, there is nothing that will keep us from God. On this Easter Sunday, I want for you what the Apostle Paul prayed for himself. As he was writing to the Philippians, he says this, I want to know the power of his resurrection. This is the desire that I want for you to have because the resurrection is a gift that gives a living hope and the living hope produces a fruit within you that brings us back to God and then powerfully works in our lives. And I want you to want this and to remind yourself that Easter Sunday is not the only day of resurrection, but because of the importance and the symbolic nature of the resurrection, of the fact that once in time, Christ Jesus, who was dead, rose again, not in somebody's mind or heart or spirit, physically from the death, came out of the grave. Every Sunday is called Resurrection Day. And the hope of the resurrection and the living hope that the resurrection gives to us is celebrated and we are renewed in it. May we long for the power of the resurrection because the promise of God is that we will experience its power as we are reminded of it.